Like I said, we're going to finish uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this Sunday officially starts, uh, kicks off the Advent season. And while Advent leads into Christmas, it's also fundamentally different from Christmas. It's a season of anticipation. It's actually a darker season than Christmas. And we tend to think of Advent as the playoffs of what will be Christmas the championship. Uh, And there's some truth to that, but Advent is actually a time to, well, it gets dark. It's a time to reflect on Jesus' second coming and the world as what it will look like and what it would look like if he didn't. Um, traditionally, like maybe your church does Advent wreaths. I know that ours does. The Advent wreaths that we do are like love, joy, peace, hope. Um, traditionally, it was death, uh, uh, judgment, hell, heaven. And I, and I chuckled this week sort of thinking about like this family that's got like six kids getting up there and like the daughter reads like the passage like, this is the hell candle. Like... <laughs> um, So maybe there's a good reason not to do that. And I didn't exactly plan this, but providentially, a traditional Advent-like passage is before us as we close our um, Sermon on the Mount. And this isn't to say that you have to care about Advent. This isn't to say that you have to understand Advent. This isn't to say that Advent really is in the Bible. You have to do that. But it does remind us the Bible discourages us from pretending like the world isn't fundamentally broken. Uh, The Bible actually encourages us to look at the brokenness that we see around us, the brokenness that we see in us, and look at it what you are, and it breaks my heart, and I'm filled with longing, and I'm filled with questions that I do not have answers to, and yet somehow at the bottom of all of this is a God that I can trust with this, even if He doesn't give me the answers that I long for. And so tonight's passage is about judgment. Uh, and the day of judgment in particular. So let me read this and pray, and we'll continue. This is Jesus speaking. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished 
at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. Uh, Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for sending Jesus uh, the first time. We wait for him to come the second time. And we ask now that you would prepare us for that great day of judgment, even now as your word is open to us. Would you, by your Spirit, dig out for us ears to hear and give us eyes to see Jesus? We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, So this is not a very light-hearted passage, the Day of Judgment. It's not a topic that we like to talk about in 2018. Uh, It's a passage that makes some of us blush as we think about it. It's a kind of passage that we would shudder to sort of bring up with our friends. Uh, And that is if we believe it at all. But the Bible is really clear that all of humanity, every single person who's ever existed, will one day stand before the Lord Jesus who is the judge. And and here's what I would submit too, if you're sort of, ah, judgment day, really? Uh, It's 2018, Joe. I I would submit to you that we really, we need the day of judgment. The world needs a day of judgment um, because the world is broken and there are things that are wrong with it and there are things that need to be put right Samuel Little, if you guys heard of him, he's been on the front page of almost every news outlet this week, may in fact be the most prolific serial killer in American history. He's already serving prison time. He is serving a life sentences or three life sentences for the murder of three people. And he has just confessed very recently that he's actually killed 90 people. And the FBI believe him because 35 of those killings have now been confirmed. They asked him, they said, why did you do this? And he said, well, God put me here to do this. God put me here to kill 90 people. And when he says it, there's no remorse in his voice, obviously. Which begs the question, why confess now? Why tell, why bring this up to light? You're already serving life prison. You can't life in prison. You can't be in prison any more than you already are. And here's why he's telling. He wants to leverage this info to be moved to a new prison. He actually benefits from telling and confessing that, oh, actually, there's 87 more than I've been judged for. Now, surely, in some awful, painful way, this will bring some semblance of closure to some of those families. But this is not justice. Not by a long shot. It's it's, it's terrible. Also in this news, in the news this week, um, it's revealed that a man who has sexually assaulted over a hundred underage girls that we know of, multimillionaire, was basically able to buy his way out of going to prison a decade ago. He was caught. Lots of evidence. And the prosecution let his money talk more than justice. There is no justice in this. You think about the lives that were taken in Pittsburgh just a few weeks ago um, in a house of worship. There's no justice in this. And so we need a day of judgment. Do the lives of the people that die, who are beat to death, who are molested, who are murdered, do their lives matter? And the answer is yes, only if there is a day of judgment. 
Because if there's no day of judgment, then we're just particles, and the meaning that we think these lives have really don't have any meaning at all. We need a day of judgment. And so this is dark, but it's an ever-present reminder that this world is fundamentally broken and sinful. And yet, the Bible tells us over and over again, the maker of heaven and earth will come, will return, and judge the world. And he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Obviously, this is is a metaphor. The gate is faith. The road, the way, is discipleship. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and I will go in, and he I will go in, and he will find pasture. In John 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. What Jesus is saying is, I am the narrow gate. And the way of the narrow gate he describes as hard. It's not as easy as the way that is broad, but Jesus says that way leads to destruction. In Luke 9, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. At the end of this gospel, Jesus commissions his disciples to go and tell others about him. He says, I want you to go and make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them all that I have taught you. And I'm with you. I go with you wherever you go. But in this passage, he warns us of false teachers. Teachers who are wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, Their teaching may mention Jesus, but they're not teaching him as he really is, or the Bible as it really is. But he says something encouraging to us about these false teachers. He says, you will recognize them by their fruit. I want us to think about this idea. You will recognize them by their fruit because Jesus is going to do something really interesting with this idea in a minute. He gives us a glimpse of the day of judgment where Jesus, this poor man born in in this backwater part of the ancient Middle East, he says, I am going to be the judge. I'm going to be the one who judges good fruit and bad fruit. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does my will for my Father who is in heaven, who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Thank you. Um, All right. So, all right. Let's come back. Um, Many will say, Lord, Lord, we did all kinds of things in your name. And I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. And this passage gives me chills when I read it. Because look at what they've done in the name of the Lord. Look at what they've done. They've spoken in His name. They've shared in His name. They've acted in His name. And Jesus says, I never knew you. 
So, look at my fruit, Lord, is what they're saying. Look at my fruit. Look at what I did. So on the one hand, Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit. And on the other hand, he says, many will say, look at my fruit. You will know them by their fruit. Look at my fruit. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. What gives? It must be that this is not the fruit that Jesus is speaking of. This is where it's helpful to remember the Sermon on the Mount is is sort of one context within the Gospel of Matthew. Chapters 5 through 7, how does it start? This is how it ends. How does it start? These are the last words. What's the first words? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And at the very end, look at my fruit, the kingdom of heaven is not for you. This has been a theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And it means that you know, you know that you have no spiritual resources in and of yourself to leverage any favor or acceptance with God. What this last passage says is we can have everyone fooled. We can have ourselves fooled, but we cannot fool Jesus. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows who we are and he knows what we are. And on the last day, what he's saying is many to Jesus instead, this good enough for you. And what Jesus is saying is, when you point to what you have done, you are not poor in spirit. That is not the fruit that I'm looking for. This is not the fruit of the kingdom. So what is the fruit then that Jesus is looking for? To answer that again, we have to remember the context is the Sermon on the Mount. What are some of the things that Jesus has emphasized over the course of the Sermon on the Mount? Learn to love my word. Value it. Let it confront you. Remember, I've not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. The Sermon on the Mount teaches us to take our anger seriously and understand that its presence in our lives reveals our poverty of spirit. He calls us to understand that sexual purity and marital fidelity are worth fighting for. You see, we may not have killed 90 people, and we may not be callous about those murders, but Jesus says the anger in your heart is just as dark and insidious. And we may not have assaulted a number, a hundred people, but Jesus says the lust in our hearts is just as dangerous. It's evil. And this is what Jesus means when he says the gate is narrow, the way is hard. It's not like the wide gate. It's not like the easy way. See, the easy way has a loud voice all around us. It's pervasive. It's the air that we breathe. And the the wide way says, look, nobody is perfect, so it's okay that you're angry, that you hate people. If If they're on the opposite end of the political spectrum, it's okay to hate them. If people have done awful things to you, it's understandable to hate them or to say, hey, look, we're all sexual beings. Express your sexuality however you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. It's okay. And when you embrace Jesus' sexual ethic, the people around you will look at you like you are a unicorn. You're strange. You're different. Dylan Roof 
you may remember, is the white supremacist who shot up the um, house, the, the the house of worship in, in South Carolina a few years ago. He he murdered nine African Americans in a prayer meeting, and um, when he was sentenced, um, their, their, the the church family came and the families of those who had lost someone who had been they loved, and they looked at him and they said, "We forgive you." You've done something awful, and we, we can't wrap our minds around it, but you need to know that we forgive you. And then everyone who had a blog following and everyone who had a microphone was asking how in the world could they possibly forgive someone who had done something like this? The narrow way confuses those who are on the broad path. How could you forgive someone who has done this? I would never forgive someone who did that. That's the power of Jesus at work in them. And we have to deny the part of us that says that forgiveness is foreign to us. I don't even know if I could do that. And we'd all have to raise our hand and say, I don't know if I could. And Jesus is saying, you have to deny the part of yourself where my narrow way is confusing and foreign to you. You see, entering the narrow gate means believing Jesus when he says, I am the Son of God who has come to save you because your efforts will never be enough to come to me. I have to come to you. Of course I've come to call you to a new way of life, but the new way of life, hear me, the new way of life is not the narrow gate. I am the narrow gate. A new behavioral strategy is not the narrow gate. A new way of living is not the narrow gate. I am the narrow gate. And the way is hard. The kingdom is for those who are poor enough to enter the kingdom through me, not trusting in their obedience even a little. The narrow way is hard, but Jesus is saying it is all of grace. It has to be all of grace because those who point to their own effort, Jesus says, that's not the fruit I'm looking for. And so there's a temptation here and only hear the bad news. Here's the deal. Grace means nothing if sin isn't realized. Grace without sin is not grace. Good news without bad news is not good news. It's just something in a vacuum. It's, it's impotent. St. Paul says in Romans, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. And Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, sin for us abounds. The way of the, of the narrow gate is hard because in addition to seeing the horrors and the brokenness of the world around us, the Sermon on the Mount forces us to see that the horrors of sin and brokenness isn't just out there, it's in here. It's in our hearts. And the Sermon on the Mount forces us to deal with it every day. So when I get angry, or when I lust, or when I judge, or when I don't feed the poor, or when I do feed the poor so that others will be proud of me, Jesus is calling me to see in myself, the temptation to say, is this enough? At least I'm not as bad as this person. Let me in. And Jesus says, on that day, I'll say, I never knew you. That's the bad news. 
The good news is Jesus is gracious and kind and draws near to the poor in spirit. And he's drawn near to us as a baby who is still somehow infinite as the, as the Godhead, who grew up to obey perfectly. He saw beautiful men and women and never, not once, objectified them sexually. And he saw horrendous men and women do awful things to him as he hung on a cross for the sins of the world, and he didn't hate them. He loved them. And when you know that you're poor, you build your hope on this person. You build your hope on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I won't reread the last section, but Jesus is saying, I'm the rock that the wise man builds a house on. I'm the rock. To build a a house on a rock is to build a house with none of your own effort, none of your own works to claim before God, but to claim everything on me. I'm the rock. And if you don't think that you're poor and you build the house on yourself and your work, it's like building a house on sand that will crumble. This gives us confidence to stand in the gospel. I don't know if you feel this way. I, I feel this way sometimes. I see this in my kids that when they do something that is awful, like, why did you hit your mom with a sword, a toy sword? Why would you do that, you know? And shoulders drop and head like, no, yeah, that's awful. That's awful. It's sin. But you're okay, buddy. Why would you do that? And what we started doing in our house, I sort of did it on the fly one day, and and it just sort of stuck. So we do it all the time. If I'm impatient, they make me do it. And we raise our hand, and we say, like, with bold confidence, I am a sinner, and I do dumb things. And Jesus is a bigger Savior, and by His Spirit, I can come back. Praise God, and my kids love that. I am a sinner, and I do dumb things. I do dumb things. And that's not who I am, because Jesus is a bigger Savior. There's a way to hear the Sermon on the Mount. There's a way to think about judgment. There's a way, and it's just like, I am awful, awful, awful. Exactly! But you have a rock in Jesus Christ to build a house on so you can stand and say, I know who I am, and I know who Jesus is. It's when I don't know who He is. It's when I don't think I need Him. It's when I think I can put myself back together. That's when I'm building something on a sand. That's what this is about. Those are the people who say, but didn't I do this? And didn't I do this? And didn't I do this? And Jesus is saying, when you get there, you don't say, look at what I did. In a few weeks, we celebrate the mystery of the Incarnation. Somehow the infinite wore diapers Tonight we reflect that this baby grew up and he's going to come back to judge. And the Christian's hope is that when we face him in judgment, we don't say, look at what I've done. We'll say, remember what you've done. Remember when the judge became the judged for us on the cross. I have no works to bring to you. I hope and trust that you've changed me, that I'm not the person I was when you first met me, But anything I've done in your name is not what I'm claiming today on this day. I'm claiming you and only you. The world around us is tragically broken. 
And I don't know why God allows such profound suffering and such sin and why some people can sort of cheat their way to the top and just squash those below. I don't know why the world works the way it does and why God allows it to be that way. But the day of judgment reminds us Jesus is not indifferent to injustice. He's not. He's going to come back and say, that was wrong, and every one of you thought you were getting away with it, and you're not. And he's going to raise the oppressed, and he's going to lower the oppressors, and he's going to make everything right. And this would be terrifying for us if we don't build our house on him and his work and acknowledge our sinfulness and our need to be forgiven. Because the good news is that even though we bring tragedy to the table, Jesus has taken that tragedy on himself and paid that penalty so that we might be with him forever in heaven. So what do we do with this? We listen to Jesus when he speaks, and we believe him. It's simultaneously the best and worst news to hear, you are a sinner and have nothing to plead before Jesus. It is humbling. We receive him. It gives us stable fun. If we play to our strengths before Jesus, he says, you'll get what you deserve. And if we claim him, we get him. So we should listen to him and we should decide daily that this is true. And when Jesus for he was teaching them as one who had authority. I was talking with Adi on Tuesday, we had lunch, and many of you know his story, right? Nominal Hindu kind of comes to RUF, gets plugged in for a while, and eventually becomes astonished by Jesus and his teaching, uh, and professes faith in Jesus, which means that he now knows him, knows Jesus. Can you believe that? He knows he's poor in spirit. And he also knows that on that day, Jesus is going to look at him and say, I know you, welcome home. And if you have trusted Jesus, he's going to say, I know you, welcome home. And But Audie mentioned, as much as his REF community has meant to him, and it's been tremendous, you know that, we've seen him cry about it. He says, one thing, one thing that has sort of left him with longing, especially last year, is that more people, more of his friends, one-on-one, didn't talk about Jesus with him. Now, there's a way to sort of hear that, and a natural response is, oh, that's me, I feel guilty. Yes, I should talk about Jesus more. Of course, I should talk about Jesus more. I should do all sorts of things for Jesus more. But I'm not, and I don't think Jesus is trying to lay a guilt trip on you. Jesus doesn't do what your parents do when you go home for Thanksgiving and then right before you leave say, you know, you can call more. Really? I didn't know that. Um, Jesus isn't looking at you and saying, you know, you could talk about me more. You could talk about me more. Lord, Lord, did we not speak in your name? Gee, that sounds familiar. See, the point is guilt and works are not the point. Rather, Jesus uses his people to show others 
the amazing and the astonishing grace of God. Jesus is not sitting in heaven with his arms crossed thinking, there goes another opportunity. He could have talked to her about me. He could have talked to her, him about me. They could, have, oh, they could have done all sorts of things. Of course we could have. He's already dealt with your lack of works. In light of that astonishing good news, ask God to astonish you yet again, or maybe even for the first time, ask God to astonish you with the gospel and ask him to use you to astonish those around you and see what good things he does in your life and through your life as you travel on this hard road of the narrow gate, standing confidently on the rock of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, you are extraordinarily gracious. And we don't think that you are sometimes. And we get lost through the brokenness. And it's so hard to see you. We wonder why you hide yourself sometimes. And yet we remember in this season that you, you also reveal yourself. You feel so hidden sometimes. You also reveal yourself. And one day you will not be hidden at all. All of creation and throughout time and history will stand before you. And so we ask that you would move in us and change us and astonish us, give us your spirit to participate in what you're doing. Prepare us in Christ for that day of judgment. We long to be used in good and powerful ways in this life, but we never want to boast in those things before you and ask, is this enough? Of course it's not. But Jesus Christ is. We thank you for that. Amen. Let's sing.